0: The following sermon, entitled The Holy Trinity, was preached on the morning of September eleventh, two 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's word this morning to the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 is our Scripture reading for this morning. We will read the whole of the chapter, and we do so in connection with Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And God saw, God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding sea, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth after his kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, Male and female created He them, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree, in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to every thing that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything He had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus far we read God's Word. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 8. This can be found in the back of our blue song books on pages 6 and 7 after the song section. It's the practice of our church to preach through the Heidelberg Catechism. We view this as a faithful summary of God's Word and a helpful teaching tool. Lord's Day 8. How are these articles divided? Into three parts. The first is of God the Father and our creation. The second of God the Son and our redemption. The third of God the Holy Ghost and our sanctification. Since there is but one only divine essence, why speakest thou of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? Because God has so revealed Himself in His Word, that these three distinct persons are the one, only, true, and eternal God. The location of Lord's Day 8 and its corresponding treatment of the Trinity is significant. The previous Lord's Day, Lord's Day 7, taught us the truth concerning faith. It taught us that faith is both a certain knowledge and an assured confidence so that with the renewed mind, the believer knows the truths of God's Word and assents to to those truths. And with the renewed will, the believer then embraces Jesus Christ, trusts Him for every aspect of His salvation. In that connection, Lord's Day 7 also taught us about the object of our faith, the content of our faith, what we are to believe. It did so especially in question and answer 22. What is then necessary for a Christian to believe? And the answer was all things promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic undoubted Christian faith briefly teach us. And then the catechism asked the follow-up question, what are these articles? And then it gave the Apostles' Creed so that it's giving the Apostles' Creed that summary of the Christian faith as the content of what we believe. Lord's Day 8 now begins with the question, how are these articles, that is the articles of the Apostles' Creed, divided? Is there any sort of organizational structure to them? And the answer is that they are divided along the lines of the Trinity. That's question answer 24. How are these articles of the Apostles' Creed divided into three parts? The first is of God the Father and our creation. The second of God the Son and our redemption. The third of God the Holy Ghost and our sanctification. And then the Catechism then uses that as a springboard to launch into its treatment of the doctrine Of the Trinity, and it's it's briefly stated in question and answers 25. But now it's noteworthy that the Catechism includes question and answers 24 and 25, because theoretically the authors could have skipped 24 and 25 and gotten right to question and answer 26, which goes to the first line of the Apostles' Creed. What believest thou when thou sayest, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth? And if the catechism had gone right to that, no one would have blinked an eye. We would have all thought that's the next most logical question. It's going to explain to us these articles. But before it does that, it first takes up the doctrine of the Trinity. It inserts these two question and answers and the placement is significant. The catechism is telling us this first is what we believe as Christians. We believe there is one God who is at the same time Father, Son, and Spirit. It's telling us that the doctrine of the Trinity is of utmost importance to the Christian faith. And it's so crucially important for good reason. One reason, for example, is that it's this doctrine of the Trinity that really distinguishes us from every other religion under the sun. This is what distinguishes us from all the false religions that we see in the world who have some deity that they may worship, but not one of them worships a triune God. This is the doctrine that distinguishes us from the cults of the world. To use one example, this distinguishes us from Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They refuse to believe that. He is the Son of God in human flesh. And this is even what distinguishes us from other forms of Christianity. This is what the doctrine of the Trinity distinguishes us from the shallower versions of the broader evangelical world who focus almost exclusively on Jesus Christ and how He's a good example and you should follow His example, but have all but forgotten the doctrine of the Trinity. It's this truth that distinguishes us from the Pentecostals who focus almost entirely on the Spirit and being baptized in the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit so that the Father and the Son are largely ignored. All of this underscores the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity. And we can see why it's placed where it is in the catechism. But it's also placed here at the outset because the doctrine of the Trinity is foundational. It's foundational for the Christian faith and the Christian walk foundational for the Christian faith, that is, for the doctrines that we hold to and that really there's no way to understand the rest of God's Word apart from the truth of the Trinity. We need to view it all through the lens of the Trinity so that even our salvation, as we'll see this morning, is a Trinitarian work. But not only is this doctrine foundational for the whole of the Christian faith, but even for the Christian life. For how we live in our families, in the church. It's rooted in the very character, the very identity of our God. And it's with that in mind that we take up Lord's Day 8 this morning using as our theme, very simply, the Holy Trinity. We'll notice three things this morning. First, our triune God. Second, His triune works. And then third, the significance. First, our triune God. Question answer 25 reads this way. Since there is but one only divine essence, why speakest thou of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? And the answer begins, because God hath so revealed Himself in His Word. God's revealed to us that He is a triune God. And He he has revealed that ever since the very beginning. It was a a dim revelation in the beginning, but it was there. And that's that's the reason we read from Genesis 1 this morning. Already in the very first verse, Scripture hints at the doctrine of the Trinity. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And what's Notable here is the combination of the subject and the verb in the original Hebrew language. Children, many of you have an English class, and I trust your teachers have taught you that when you are putting together a subject and a verb, they have to agree with one another so that if you have a singular subject, you need a a verb that matches that, a singular verb. If you have a plural subject, you need a plural verb so that, for example, if we say, he believes, we put an S at the end of the word, believe, because we have a singular subject. But if we say, they believe, we don't put the S at the end of the word believe because we have a a plural subject. That's how language works the English language as well as the Hebrew language. But what's interesting is that in verse 1 of the Bible, there is a plural subject followed by a singular verb in the original language. The subject is not the singular El, but the plural Elohim. And in light of that, you might expect that the verb that follows is going to be plural, but instead it's a singular verb. And no doubt, some have seen this and scratched their head and wondered, what's the meaning? What's the significance? And the explanation is that already in the first verse of the Bible, the Spirit is hinting at the truth that our God is a triune God. And if we have doubts about whether that's the idea, the explanation, well, it becomes clear when we continue reading in the rest of the chapter. Specifically, when we come to verses 26 and 27. Verse 26 reads as follows, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Notice those pronouns. Us and our. They're plural. So that when... God takes counsel within himself. He, when he speaks to himself, he's not talking to himself as an individual, just talks to himself, but as multiple persons talking to each other. So there's a certain plurality to this God, but yet at the same time, he's one. And that's what comes out in verse 27. Verse 27 we have So God created man in his own image so that we have the, the singular verb and now a singular pronoun. His own image. And it's in light of this that even the Old Testament Israelites would have had some conception of the Trinity. They knew there's only one God. God made that very clear to them again and again and again throughout their history. When He gave them the name Jehovah. He didn't say, My name is We Are. But My name is I Am. When He spoke to His people through the prophets, He told them in Isaiah 44, verse 6, for example, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside Me there is no God. It's not the case that there are many different gods, but from a numerical point of view, there's only one God and His name is Jehovah. But yet, at the same time, the Israelites would have been familiar with this language in Genesis 1 so that they would have understood there's a, a certain plurality within God. And no doubt, there was some confusion. What exactly does this mean? But yet, they would have believed it by faith so that their situation was not altogether different than our own. You can picture uh, an Israelite father trying to teach his children about Jehovah God, telling him, My son, there's one God and only one God, and yet within the Godhead there's a certain plurality. And Son, I can't wrap my mind around it, but... God tells us so in His Word, so we believe it by faith. Because God has revealed this from the very beginning, even if ever so dimly. But now that revelation has become clearer in the New Testament. Especially in the coming of Jesus Christ and in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God revealed Himself as a triune God in the coming of Jesus Christ. Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples for a moment. As you followed Jesus Christ, it was unmistakably clear He is God. He said as much. He he took the name I Am Jehovah. He applied it to Himself. He said, The Father and I are one and everybody knew what He was saying. Even the Pharisees understood He was making Himself equal with God. And now He not only said it, He showed it. He proved it with all the miracles that He performed, whether it was the healing of a disease, whether it was the feeding of the multitudes, whether it was the calming of a storm... There is no denying that this Jesus of Nazareth is God in human flesh. But yet, He's distinct from the Father. Because we've heard Him pray to the Father. He he addresses Father as His God. And so, there's Jesus Christ who's God, and yet there's another who's... Father, who is at the same time God there's a revelation of the Trinity, and that gets even clearer with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is likewise God. The miraculous signs that accompanied his outpouring made that unmistakably clear, and the early church recognized this, so that in acts five there Equating lying to the Spirit with lying to God. Those are the same thing because the Spirit is God. But yet at the same time, the Spirit is distinct from Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ left. He went to heaven. And now he has sent his Spirit. And really, not just he has sent his Spirit, but he said, The Father and the Son would send the Spirit so that we have three different persons who are God, but yet they're clearly distinct from each other. And it was in light of this that the the apostles recognized and understood the doctrine of the Trinity. There's one God who is at the same time three distinct persons. And that they understood it is clear from the New Testament epistles, which reveal even more clearly the whole doctrine of the Trinity. We've seen this, for example, in our ongoing series going through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, where that was that grand Trinitarian doxology. It was organized along the lines of the Trinity so that. The Apostle Paul began by inspiration saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he went on to speak of the Son in whom we have redemption. And then he speaks of the Spirit that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. He has in view the Trinity. This comes out later in the book. Chapter 2, verse 18. Speaking of prayer, we read, For through Him, that is Jesus Christ, We both, that is Jews and Gentiles, have access by one Spirit unto the Father. All three persons mentioned in a single verse. And now for us, it's on the basis of these revelations of the Trinity that we've looked at this morning and many others that we as Christians confess this doctrine even as it's taught in question and, answers, question and answer 25. Since there is but one only divine essence, why speakest thou of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? Because God has so revealed Himself in His Word that these three distinct persons are the one only true and eternal God. There is one God, is what this is teaching us. There's only one divine essence. Not multiple gods. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are not three separate deities, but numerically, there is but one God and He is one in His essence, in His being. We use those two words as synonyms. But at the same time, there are three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And they're distinct from one another. So that the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father nor the Son. But not only are they distinct in that they each have their own identity, but they're distinct in that they each have their own unique personal properties. In that the way that each person relates to the other two is distinct from the others. For it's the Father who eternally begets the Son. It's the Son who is eternally begotten of the Father. And it's the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. There are three distinct persons. And we can say all this based on what God Himself has revealed to us in His Word. But now even as we confess all this, We humbly recognize that this is a truth that goes beyond our comprehension. And that's worth acknowledging. Because perhaps we've struggled with this whole doctrine of the Trinity. What do you mean by an essence versus a person? How are those two things distinct from each other? What's the meaning of all this language? And in response, we can give careful definitions of what is an essence. What do we mean by person? And in sermons in the past, I've taken the time to do that. In catechism class, we take the time to do that. What do we mean by these terms? At the same time, it's worth acknowledging that even as we use these terms that are a part of Christian dogma, We're simply trying to articulate in some way this truth that's clearly revealed on the pages of Scripture, while at the same time recognizing that human language is in many ways deficient to to capture it. Augustine, the early church father, put it well when he said, quote, yet when the question is asked, what three human language labors altogether under great poverty of speech. The answer, however, is given three persons. Not that it might be completely spoken, but that it might not be left wholly unspoken. He's saying there's some truth on the pages of Scripture. It's there. We see it. And we have to say something about it We have to come up with some way of explaining this truth that we find here. And that's why the church has settled on these terms of essence and person. While at the same time recognizing we're simply distinguishing between that which they have in common and that which makes them distinct. That's a point that one of the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, Zacharias Ursinus, makes in his Commentary, he has much more to say than this, but one of the points that he makes is that when we refer to the essence, the being of God, really what we're doing is saying, what do the three persons have in common? Well, all three of them are God. They are co-equal, co-eternal, co-substantial with one another so that You may take any attribute of God and it applies equally to each of the three persons. They they have this in common. That's essence. That's being. And when we use the term person, really we're talking about what distinguishes them from one another. What makes them unique to each other? what What is true of them individually? What is true of them in their relationships to one another within the Godhead? Essence, that's what they share in common. Person is what makes them distinct. That's our triune God. One God. One in being. Three in person. And now just as with regard to who God is, we can speak of what they have in common. And what's unique about each one of them? What's altogether striking is that we see that same dynamic in the works of our God. In His triune works. In that in every single work, all three persons are working. Never does one person work to the exclusion of the other two, and yet at the very same time, within each work, the manner in which each person is working is distinct. So that there's this same dynamic that's what they have in common, and that which is distinct about each person. And now we see that revealed in the works of God. So we'll start with the common aspect. In that every work of God is a triune work. All three persons are involved in every work. And that's true, even of the works that are mentioned in question answer twenty-four. How are these articles divided into three parts? The first is of God the Father and our creation, the second of God the Son and our redemption the third of God the Holy Ghost and our sanctification. So question answer, article 24, is ascribing certain works to certain persons of the Trinity. And I'll explain a little later on in the sermon why this is legitimate. But for now, we want to see that even in these three works, all three persons of the Trinity are involved. That's true of the work of creation. It ascribes it to the Father, but yet, That's not to the exclusion of the Son or the Spirit. The Son created. That's John 1, verse 3. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And that comes out even in Genesis chapter 1. The Son is not obviously present, but He is there. Because how did God create? Genesis 1, verse 3. And God said... Let there be light that is God spoke God created by the Word, and we know that Jesus Christ is the Word of God, so that Jesus Christ is there the Son of God is there, even in Genesis chapter one, he created, and at the same time the spirit created that too comes out in Genesis one, verse two, for example, the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Without getting into the explanation of what does it mean that He moved upon the face of the waters, it's clear He was there. He was working. He, he too created the heavens and the earth. All three persons created. All three persons redeemed. The catechism ascribes that to God the Son, but at the same time, the Father's involved. And that it was the Father who spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all for our redemption. That's Romans 8, verse 32. Same thing in John 3, verse 17. For God sent His Son into the world to condemn not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. The Father redeems. The Spirit redeems. For as we're taught in Ephesians 4, verse 30, it's the Spirit who seals us unto the day of our redemption. Romans 8, verse 32, the Spirit is the firstfruits while we await the redemption of our bodies. It's not just the Son who redeems, it's the triune God who redeems. Same is true of our sanctification. The Father sanctifies. First Thessalonians 5, verse 23, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And it's t- talking about the Father. Likewise, the, the Son sanctifies us. As 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 teaches us, He's made unto us our sanctification. It's a teaching of Ephesians 5, verses 25 and 26. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by His Word. So even though the Catechism ascribes different works to different persons, we've shown that each of these is the work of the triune God. I think most of us are familiar with these examples. But now let's use Another example that perhaps we're not as familiar with. It's the triune God who, for example, teaches us. For the Father teaches. That's John 6, verse 45. It is written of the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned, of the Father cometh unto Me. The Father teaches. At the same time, the Son teaches. The whole of His prophetic office was a, an office of teaching. This is why God made the solemn charge. This is My beloved Son. Hear ye Him. Hear Him because He's going to teach you. And at the same time, it's the Spirit who teaches us. John 14, verse 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in My name, He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. All of this is to emphasize the point that what we see in God Himself That He's one being, and at the same time, three persons, is reflected in His works. In that every work of God is a work of all three persons. They share the work in common. And at the same time, we see that the manner in which each of them works is distinct. So there's the commonality And at the same time, the distinctions, the uniqueness. And that too comes out in the works of our God. And it's most clearly seen in our salvation. And that all three persons save us, and yet each contributes in a unique way. For it's the Father especially who chooses us. That's Ephesians 1. Verses 3 and following. Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 4 adds, According as He, the Father, hath chosen us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. It's the Father who's said to choose to predestinate. And that, Unique part of his work fits with who he is in his person. For it's the Father who begets the Son. And the one begetting, therefore, is the, the cause, the, the origin, the beginning of all things, to use the language of our Belgian confession. And so it fits with who the Father is as to his person, that he's the one choosing us, he's the one planning our salvation. The same applies to the Son with His unique manner of working in that it's the Son who accomplishes our salvation. He, after all, is the One who was... Well, just read it. Ephesians 1, verse 7. "...in whom we have redemption through His blood." We're talking about the Son. The forgiveness of the sins according to the riches of His grace. It was the Son who in the fullness of time was made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. It's the Son who accomplishes our salvation. And again, it fits with His person. In that the Son is the one who is begotten of the Father. So that if one of the three persons is going to be born of a woman made under the law to be sent into this world, it's going to be the Son who is begotten of the Father. His unique manner of working fits with His unique personal properties within the Godhead. And so it is with the Spirit who applies the salvation that Christ has accomplished. It's the Spirit who comes and dwells within us so that we are temples of the Holy Ghost. It's the Spirit who unites us to Jesus Christ. Who takes what Christ has earned and bestows it upon us. Because the Spirit is the one who proceeds from the Father and the Son. He's the one who takes that which has its source in God. That which is treasured up in Jesus Christ and now proceeding from Father and Son, bestows those blessings upon us immediately. That is, He's the the agent affecting this. So that all three persons are saving us, but the manner in which each of them works is slightly different. And it's because of that because that's true, that the catechism says what it does in question answer twenty four. We acknowledged earlier that the catechism in question answer twenty four ascribes certain works to certain persons. And we already showed, well, that does not mean that this person is operating apart from to the exclusion of the other two. But what then is the point? Well, the catechism is teaching us that because of this unique manner in which each of the three persons works, that in certain works, one of the three Stands out, as it were. One of the three is on the foreground in that particular work because it fits with that person's unique personal properties. The Father is said to create because He is the One who begets the Son. And the part of the idea of begetting is, at least in earthly terms, is giving life to. Uh, An earthly father who begets an earthly son is, is giving life to their Son. And so it's the Father who who brings things into life. He's the One who creates things out of nothing. And it's the Son who redeems us. In a way, we've already explained this. He's the One who is begotten of the Father and thus He's the One who's going to be sent into this world to be born of a woman. It's the Son who shed His blood at Calvary in order to redeem us. It wasn't the Father. It wasn't the Spirit. But it was the Son who gave His life. And therefore, the Son is prominent. He stands on the foreground, as it were, in the work of redemption. And so it is with the the Spirit and our sanctification. He's the Holy Spirit. As the breath of God, He He consecrates the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father. And thus, He's the One who comes to live and dwell in us. To take us, to separate us from sin, and to consecrate us, devote us to our God. He stands on the foreground in our sanctification. So we see then, that who God is as a triune God, one in essence, Three in persons is then reflected in his works. And now all of this is significant for us. And I'd like to conclude this morning with three points of significance or application. First, from this we see the glory of our God. the outset of the sermon, we said it's the doctrine of the Trinity that distinguishes us from most other religions of the world. But that's true really only because it's this truth about God Himself that distinguishes Him, that separates Him from every other imaginable deity. Falsely called so. There's no one like Him. Man has never even come up with an idea that that resembles this as far as applying it to their false religion. This God is altogether set apart simply because of who He is as the triune God. And what is more, that He's so glorious that we cannot even comprehend Him. Every one of us here this morning who is able to say to a certain degree, okay, I, I think I understand the Trinity a little bit, at the same time is left wondering, how could I ever comprehend this? How could I ever fully wrap my mind around this? And the reality is we cannot and that points to the greatness, to the, the glory, the majesty of our God. This doctrine of the Trinity underscores His glory. And thus it's reason to worship Him. To praise Him. To magnify Him. And to praise Him as the triune God. To praise This one God who is at the same time three persons for Scripture itself points us in that direction. And that we worship the Father. Ephesians 3, verse 14. Paul prays, for this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father. Bowing our knees is representative of of worshiping this God. And at the same time, we worship the Son. It's clear from the book of Revelations. Revelation. Chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, for example. and from We read this, "...and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the Prince of the kings of the earth, unto Him that loved us and washed us from our sins in His blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen." And we see this very thing a couple chapters later in Revelation 5. What is everyone in heaven doing? They're saying, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. That is, they're worshiping the Son. And at the same time, we worship the Spirit. Because as the One who is co-equal and co-eternal and co-substantial with the Father and the Son, He's no less worthy of our worship. At the same time, it's the Spirit really who who empowers our worship. He's the One who, who works in us so that we worship God. So that our worship is itself Trinitarian. Because we serve this glorious triune God. That first of all is the significance. Second, The significance is that this underscores the wonder and the security of our salvation. This highlights the wonder of our salvation. What a glorious work we described in the second point. There's no other work like it in all the world. In which you have three distinct persons working in such perfect harmony, with such unity of purpose, and at the same time, each of those three persons is working in a manner that's unique to that person that's in harmony with the very identity of that person. And that's not just because, well, this is the work that needs to be done in order to accomplish salvation. And the the father happens to to fit well into this role. The son happens to fit well into this role. No, not that. But it starts with who God is as the triune God. And the whole plan of redemption, the whole work of salvation is designed to reflect who He is so that God came up with this plan of salvation that there's going to be a a choosing in eternity, a sending of one to redeem and another to apply. Because in this way, He would then reveal that He's one God who is at the same time Father, Son, and Spirit. What a wondrous work this is. And because of that, that means our salvation is secure. It's not the case, as some falsely imagine, that the Son had to convince the Father to love us. That the Father was this angry, almost nasty God, but then the Son came into this world and He loved us and persuaded the Father then to love us. That's not biblical Christianity. Nor is it the case that there are three separate gods. And that the one is trying to save us. Maybe two are trying to save us, but you never know what the third is going to do. He, he might throw a wrench into the plans of the other two and, and ruin it all. That's not the case. Because it's the will and the work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit to save God's people. And that means our salvation is secure. There's nothing in all the world that can prevent God's people from being saved. Because our salvation is the work of the triune God. So the significance first of all, is that this truth underscores the glory of our God. Second, it emphasizes the wonder and the security of our salvation. And third, it's the foundation for the Christian life. And Now perhaps that one surprises you. Let me explain. On the one hand, it's the foundation for the Christian family life. Because within the family, we see the same dynamic. Unity and diversity. There's unity between a husband and a wife. For when they come together in marriage, Scripture tells us that there is now a one flesh union that exists between them. And then when God gives children Those children are are begotten of their parents. They they share the the DNA, the blood, the life of their parents. There's unity there. And not just a, a physical unity, but in a Christian home, there's a unity of purpose. In a Christian home, the family says together, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's a unifying principle. And at the same time, there's diversity. Because the husband and father is not the mother and wife, nor is he the children. The mother and wife is not the husband and father, nor is she the children. And the children are not the parents. Each has their own unique place. Their own unique position. It's the father who's the loving head of the home. Who's called to lead his home. It's the the wife who's the, the submissive help me. Who takes all of her gifts, all of her abilities, and presses them into the service of the home. And it's the children who have a a unique role yet and that they're children under their parents called to honor, to submit, to obey their parents. The Christian family life is therefore rooted in the doctrine of the Trinity and who our God is. It's foundational, foundational for the Christian family life. But now, on the other hand, we can say the same thing about the life of the church. It's foundational for that too, and that there's unity and diversity. There's a glorious unity here this morning, and that there's one body one spirit we're all called with one hope of calling there's one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all that's unity we're all members of the same body and there's unity of purpose and that the chief end of us of God's people is to glorify our god and to live with him forever that's what unifies us and at the same time there's diversity because we are not all clones of each other God has made each one of us unique, distinct from the others. He's given to each one of us a, a different place in the body of Christ. He, we're each like different body parts in, in the body. And with that, God gives different gifts, different abilities, so that we can serve the body, we can serve the church, we can serve our God in unique ways so that the manner of our working aligns with how God has made each one of us as individuals. It's the life of the church that is likewise rooted in the doctrine of the Trinity. It's foundational for the Christian life. It may be that recognizing this both increases our adoration for our triune God and encourages us to serve Him in whatever station and calling He has given to us. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, with humble adoration, we bow our heads to Thee in prayer to glorify Thee, the one God of heaven and earth who is Father, Son, and Spirit. We thank Thee for revealing this truth to us in Thy Word, for we could never know it otherwise. And we thank Thee for the gift of faith whereby we are enabled to believe this glorious truth. Fill our hearts with a sense of wonder and amazement. And may that come to expression in a life of service and praise. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.